as soon as she becomes self-reflective, she has this desire to be free, to escape. You're listening to episode 39 of Good Is In The Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dolsky, and I will be joined once again with the very talented, very witty Rudy Salo. And for this episode, we are fortunate enough to team up with another podcast hosted by Dr. Daniel Murphy and Dr. Gregory Jackson. Their podcast is Two Philosophers Drink Beer and Discuss Film. I'm going to link their show in the show notes. Check out their podcast. It's really a pleasure to listen to them dive into different films and give a fantastic analysis using philosophical themes. Their latest one was on Pulp Fiction, which discussed Tarantino's use of meaning. I really liked their episode on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where they went into the concept of memory and the dynamics of love. Anyway, I reached out to them and said, hey, there is this movie I have been dying to talk about, Ex Machina. Would you come on the show? And they said yes. Now, it is amazing how this one film unearthed a conversation that took us from talking about the book of Genesis, the concept of beauty, what is consciousness, and the distinction between weak and strong artificial intelligence. And can you program artificial intelligence with a moral code? It was a delightful conversation, and it reminded me of my days in grad school when I was in Leuven, and there were these long days in the library or in lecture halls, and then at the end of the day, my fellow philosophy students and I would get together and drink beer and have these wonderful long conversations well into the night. So... I don't know if it's really possible to dedicate a podcast episode, but hey, I'm going to do it. So for my grad school friends, Danny, Drew, Dan, Mike, Ben, John, Jeff, Vishnu, Jenny, this is for you. All right, let's talk Ex Machina. So the Oracle says that there is no one wiser than Socrates. And in order for him to understand that truth, he didn't retreat from the world, he went into the world. And he understood the truth of that through dialoguing with others. Yeah, no, absolutely. If you take Socrates' most famous statements, you know, the only thing I know is nothing, right? If you get to this point of ignorance, which I would argue is the start of philosophy, if you want to do philosophy, you have to undo yourself and all of the prejudice and things you've actually come to accept as truth. If you get to this point where you say, hang on a minute, I don't know anything, that forces you to go out in the world and actually ask other people, what do you think? So it's that point of ignorance that Socrates gets to through that statement. The only thing I know is that I don't know. That forces him to actually go out and ask other people, what do you know? Yeah. I think also that story shows us the, the kind of the importance of interpretation as well, right? I mean, we were talking about education there earlier on and how the education model now seems to be so much about disseminating information. And yet there's this, I think the reason why people are left knowing what what do I believe and what do I know is because they don't have a way of navigating that information, of reflecting and interpreting all that information. It's like that famous quote by Hegel, something like, uh, of the facts don't fit the interpretation so much for the facts. And it's a sort of funny point. Obviously, facts are very important, but facts do have to be interpreted. And the way that we interpret them matters. And I think, you know, the story of Socrates tells us there's one thing to say, oh, Socrates, the wisest person in the world. But the interpretation that he gives this is incredibly profound about the natures of human ignorance and knowledge. And and had he not given us that interpretation, that story would have just been, oh, there was a guy in Athens who was really smart. Like, that's it, right? (laughs) 
So, so it just shows the, the significance of, and that's the role of philosophy, I guess, right, is to help us critically evaluate information. Yeah, and also just what you're saying on education or disseminating information. And it is the view of education, I think, in the United States and everywhere at the moment that if something cannot be used, it's useless. And I think philosophy, when it's done properly, it is useless because you don't use it as a tool. It, rather, philosophy does something to you. It changes you, right? So you're not in control of philosophy in that sense. I think this is why it's so hard for philosophy departments to get funded these days because you have businesses saying, well, what can we actually bring from philosophy to the marketplace? But philosophy doesn't function in that way at all. I couldn't agree more with you. I would want to have somebody that studied philosophy being a part of a management team at a big corporation because I feel like that approach that somebody that did study philosophy and had worked on themselves would be great for worker morale and for, for really hard issues when you're trying to balance corporate profits versus, you know, the human element at every corporation. Well, maybe not an existentialist though. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, no, I mean, somebody would need to be grounded in like a normal person, which, you know, I'm right. clearly not a philosopher and I'm not a normal person, but the vast majority of quote unquote, you people are not normal. So that said, <laughs> I, 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 I'm just trying to say I could see the benefit from it. That's right. Like in the history of philosophy, I mean, they're all kind of funny looking, don't have yeah. any children. There's like no relationships. I mean, they're just, they're I think Albert Camus, though, is the only good looking philosopher. Uh, Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was a beautiful man. <laughs> Didn't he have, wait, no, really? Yeah, I've seen it wasn't some... his whole thing about the loss of, of his fiance and. Yeah, 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 yeah Regina Olsen, right. but she was beautiful as well, right? So obviously he was a looker too. But yeah, I, I've seen kind <laughs> of sketches of Kierkegaard and he's very, very beautiful. I, I sat in a class of Dan where he, where a, a class you were given, Dan, where you put up a photo of Kierkegaard and got your students to admire how good looking he was. Like, <laughs> I think Dan just fancies Kierkegaard a bit. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Like being living in Denmark too long, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's the perfect segue into a question that Gwen constantly asks on her show, mm -hmm. Good is in the Details, what is beauty? And I feel like that is one of the themes, I think, in Ex Machina. I mean, there are so many layers and themes in Ex Machina. Do you think beauty was one of those questions? Or was it the fact that there was this godlike Frankenstein person who was clearly a, a sexual pervert and made yeah. all of these very beautiful robots. But I, but I'm just curious. I mean, do you think that was one of the questions? I think in the it film? was seduction more than beauty. It was not just a gratuitous as you have in a lot of films, uh, you know, an attractive woman, a lot of times it's gratuitous. It's uh, unnecessary, but for this, that was necessary, I think, for the film to do its point. But I'm going to yield to my philosophy guests here. <laughs> well, I think, you know, when we talk about beauty today, it's often viewed through the lens of subjectivity. We say, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And the movie kind of depicts that a bit because remember, Ava was made through the porn searches from <laughs> the Donald Gleason character, right? Yeah, like, Caleb, Caleb is his name, yeah. yeah. So obviously that's framing it in that lens, right? It's specific to him and his preferences in terms of women. But there's many different concepts of beauty in the history of philosophy. If you go back to ancient Greece, for instance, there's an objective understanding of beauty. If something is perfectly formed for the ancient Greeks, it's beautiful, right? So you can have this in a mathematical theorem. So Pythagoras' theorem, x squared plus y squared equals z squared. That's beautiful, objectively beautiful in a theoretical sense. So when something is perfectly formed for the ancient Greeks, it's objectively beautiful. Whereas we have more of a subjective understanding of beauty. But I think what's interesting in the movie is that obviously Ava is created as an object. And 
in this sense, the Oscar Isaac character is trying to objectify yeah. a certain sense of beauty. But, you know, we talked a bit about the male gaze and the objectification of women in our Under the Skin episode, which is the movie, great movie with Scarlett Johansson from 2013. Fantastic. And we were talking about the male gaze and the objectification of women, but we kind of uh, made the caveat that both Greg and I are men, obviously. Yeah, right? right. So I'd be interested to know what Gwendolyn has to say about this and the kind of objectification of Ava in this movie. Do you kind of see her as being in the male gaze or do you see her as kind of struggling to get out of that in the movie? I loved okay, so how you did that. I loved how you turned that right back on her. That was very smart. I just want to, I just want to observe that. <laughs> well, I, very, danger, <laughs> very dangerous ground that she puts yeah. you on and then you put it right back on her. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I think the scene where I think it's where you first see her and then there is this beautiful, you know, scenery behind her that all I could think about is Eve. That yeah. maybe she represented Eve and that was the Garden of Eden behind her. And of course, in the story of Genesis, that Eve is pretty much the downfall. She is the one <laughs> yeah. who's seducing for more knowledge and brings about the fall of man. And so that tale of seduction and that that being a man's weakness is as old as time, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking about her as Eve. If, if Nathan that. is playing the role of God or attempting to play the role of God. Well, then he explicitly I was relates himself to God at one stage. So I think you're right, yeah, to equate that to you. I guess that it's not so much that there is an objectification, that it is a criticism of that objectification, that playing into that mm-hmm. is, a, is inherently problematic. But you're right, it's also interesting because she starts out as object and just this inability for Caleb's response to her and his, his loss of self that... It was just this old school notion of a woman being a seductress and it worked. Mm-hmm. Do you find that to be, so I watched it with my wife, you know, her response to the very point that you made, the film is both feminist and yet anti-feminist because it, it brought up the whole downfall of man aspect of Eva character. And so she took that as like, yeah, you know, I isn't this part of the old story of the woman as being the downfall? As a woman, do you take offense to that? Or are you just watching it objectively saying, okay, I could see that story? That's the thing. I don't think the film is advocating for it. I think that it is highlighting the problem with it by having them as sexual. Because it wouldn't have worked if the robot was a dude. It would not, there's no way it would have worked the other way. So that's what I mean by it wasn't gratuitous. It It was intentional. And I think that that is what highlights the problems with objectification, um, with looking at women as a downfall, that the film is using that. It's not advocating that sexist position, but it is demonstrating it. It's revealing it. Yeah, because, you know, there's at the, at the end sequence then, there's this sort of sense of, I mean, there is this sense of danger, but there is also the sense of possibility, right? Of this, mm-hmm. like, what's going to happen next? And obviously, we're all waiting Obviously, it's not going to come, but we're all waiting for part two when we know what actually happens when she gets out there in the world. And so do you think then in this notion of seduction that she ends up using the male gaze to her advantage to become like liberated? Wait a minute. What are you talking? We're living through part two. Adam and Eve, <laughs> yeah, uh, you yeah. know, we're all descendants from Adam and Eve. Don't we, don't we know how the story yeah. played out? I'm mm-hmm. clearly being facetious here that's, that's <laughs> a, if you, like, in case you didn't know that. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what happens to her out in the world. Yeah, sure. She takes over. Come on, think about it. She <laughs> she is, I mean, the next evolution, okay, uh, I, you know, 
I was, I was going to save this for later, but okay. There's going to be a lot of people that die from COVID-19. What I'm also worried about from COVID-19, and by the way, if you guys haven't figured this out yet, I, we talk about it on numerous shows. Uh, I'm an OCD addict, so I definitely think overthink the stuff too much. You're with all the back, with all the antibacterial stuff that we're using, all the Lysol, mm-hmm. everything that we're wiping down, we are going to create super bacteria that's going to wipe out mankind. The only hope we have for mankind is for us to transfer our bodies into computers and become robot-like. Mm-hmm. That is where I think the future is going. I am not the only person that says this. The Wall Street Journal wrote an article <laughs> about this, but there, there are people out there that believe that the next evolution of humankind, our consciousness being transferred into computers, and I feel like that might be one of the themes in Ex Machina as well. No, yeah, but- I think absolutely, uh, but mm-hmm. I think what this presupposes is that consciousness is the type of thing that can be replicated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, Greg, you've kind of researched a bit on this. You maybe have something more to say about that way. Maybe why consciousness cannot be replicated. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose it's funny that you guys brought up beauty there because like, I didn't see that. In what, what I saw was this flawed notion that consciousness was a thing that could be separated, first of all, from a body, but also then just held in, I don't know, virtual space. And then what basically happened was Nathan transferred that consciousness into, you know, sex robots or whatever, that there was this horrible objectification going on where, and, and I think that is a, a kind of flawed notion of AI, right? That this was the, the idea that they were running with back in the 70s, I think, in a lot of AI research. I don't know if anyone's heard of Hubert Dreyfus, but he was a famous kind of Heideggerian-esque philosopher from the States who would have been critiquing a lot of AI research at the time. And what they thought was, okay, well, we can recreate this thing called consciousness by inputting all, finding out all the thoughts and the feelings and the the ways in which human, all the data that we have. So we walk into a room and we say, oh, there's a wall and there's a floor and there's, and if we put all that information into a computer, which is, um, and then we can recreate consciousness, um, which is, I think, exactly what Nathan ended up saying at one point. He says, you know, all oh, we, we were, we had so much data on human activity that it was an inevitability that this would lead to consciousness. But of course, consciousness isn't that kind of thing. We talk about the hard problem of consciousness as something that it, it almost as if we understand the human being as much as we can, and, and only if we have this little bit more kind of scientific data, then we will make sense of how all of this information that we've created gives rise to subjective conscious experience. And I think it's a flawed understanding of what consciousness really is, that you won't get to a phenomenon like consciousness if you're studying it for something in the scientific way, right? As something that can be objectified, can be observed, we can make hypotheses about it, we can experiment, we can great create data, and then if we do that enough, we'll know what consciousness is. But consciousness is, that's an inappropriate way of making sense of consciousness. And so what's actually happening, if you look at AI research now, is it's changed from that attempt to recreate a human mind into what we have in smart devices, basically, right? We have all these devices that kind of learn about our behavior and then make things more convenient for us. And of course, what we've learned is that recently enough, we talked about this in I think the sixth episode on surveillance capitalism, but that information is actually being gathered against our will and being used against us to not only predict our behavior, but at times uh, determine our behavior. And I think the film plays with that a little bit, but I think doesn't really deal with it properly because, you know, at one point, I think maybe one moment that I was reminded of this was when at the start, Caleb comes in and Nathan says something to him like, uh, you know, your key card is going to open up whatever door that you're allowed to open up in and the other doors won't open up. And and it's presented in this language of emancipation 
uh, clarity, being on the same terms. We know where we stand with each other. But I think what happens is that very language of kind of emancipation and freedom um, and information ends up being used against him. And in the next scene, he's, he's signing contracts and he's signing away all these kind of, he's becoming part of this experiment. He doesn't even know it. And I think that's exactly the logic of kind of surveillance capitalism to sell us this promise of freedom and, and having these smart devices that can help liberate us from mundane everyday life, whereas actually it's being used fundamentally kind of against us, all in this promise wrapped up in this promise of progress and AI. And I think that that's kind of the logic of Nathan as a character. He's very much a sort of Silicon Valley, Elon Musk type. And we sort of, the film does explore to some degree, I think, the problems with kind of that viewpoint. Sorry, just to clarify, I don't think it does a very good job of actually presenting what AI is like. I think AI, the dream of recreating human consciousness, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm skeptical of it. I don't think it'll happen. Um, but I think what is happening is something far more kind of sinister. Maybe if I can just jump in on two points here. So when we talk about AI, there's two different types of AI. People talk about weak artificial intelligence and strong artificial intelligence. So weak artificial intelligence actually exists. It's Siri, it's Alexa, it's Google Home, right? That's a type of intelligence. But when we talk about strong artificial intelligence, that's a self-awareness. Alexa doesn't know that it's processing data, right? It just processes data. But Ava, what the whole test is about is that, if, is she aware that she's aware of something? And this is the definition of human consciousness. The word consciousness is quite new within, you know, human language. If you go back to ancient Greece, they talked about the psyche, which was the soul for them. And then obviously this concept became Christianized in the medieval period. It's only when we get into German philosophy in the modern periods, the term Bewusstsein is what consciousness comes from. It means being aware. But obviously animals are aware as well, right? They receive kind of that and they're aware of the world around them. They respond to it. What makes human beings different is that we're aware that we are aware, right? I'm aware that I'm aware of everything. And what this gives me the ability to do as a conscious human being is to question my experience. And this is what some uh, phenomenologist, uh, Edmund Husserl said, is an example of human freedom. He finds human freedom in consciousness ability to reflect upon itself. That's what makes us free as human beings. We can kind of detach ourselves from experience to actually think about experience. One of the things that Husserl says is that we've been functioning under this erroneous interpretation of consciousness. And I think that's what Greg was getting at, because we think of consciousness as one type of thing, and then the things that we experience as another type of thing. This is basic Cartesian metaphysics, Rene Descartes, thinker. He said there's two type of things. There's thinking things and extended things. And what Husserl shows is that, well, this is an abstract way of thinking about consciousness, because the primordial, the original relation in consciousness is that we always think about something. Consciousness is always consciousness of something. It's not just a thing existing in itself, but it, it exists in this relation between an object and the subject, right? So what happens in between those things, mm. that's consciousness. He mm. calls it intentionality. So mm -hmm. consciousness, strictly speaking, is not a thing. It's this mm -hmm. process of grasping reality. And if it's not a thing, then it can't be replicated as a thing, right? So yeah. I think Greg is kind of very right when shedding doubt on this ability to recreate consciousness. I think if it did happen, it would happen completely by accident, right? right? You, and that's yeah, a scary it, thought as well. <laughs> do you think but, that this, these kinds of questions and these kinds of thoughts has led to the explosion of marijuana use throughout the world? Because I feel like it would be a lot easier 
easier for me to wrap my head around some of this stuff if I was really high. I'm just throwing that out there as, as just something. Anybody want to pipe in? On well, that? no, as philosophers, we have a natural, you know, stimulant, which is actually doing philosophy. So we don't. Oh, yeah. You guys all sound high. You, you sound high. It's hilarious. No wonder you guys are happy all the time. You, you, the way you talk and it's like, dude, is that dude high? I love it. I, I love it. You know what? In film and in TV, whenever there is a character who is studying philosophy, they're always in all black and brooding. <laughs> they're always and without a job <laughs> it's not true you see you, oh, well you, the no job just, is true well, <laughs> I, I hear that i hear that. maybe that's why there's a lot of philosophy podcasts out there i don't know I'm throwing, I'm just throwing that against the wall. yeah well i think that there's also this tale that all of our that we get in the film is that our creation whether it's works of arts uh technology but that they are a reflection of ourself Mm. And that ultimately Nathan's desire as there's something, well, let me put it this way. There is something a little bit sad. The moment you're watching the film, or I found this, when you realize that he is 100% isolated and that his only company are robots and Mm. that he has emotionally stunted himself that his own narcissism. So this notion that what he is doing is progress is actually emotionally stunting him because it might seem for a second that it would be great to be around a robot. You don't have to worry about fights. You can be sexually gratified every time. And then you can live as you want. But the thing is that when you interact with somebody, like let's just say, for example, you are having a bad day and you're complaining and you're like, you know, somebody stole the stapler again. You know, this person is such an ass, whatnot. And then the person you're talking to says, I have cancer. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, okay. You can put your own life into perspective that that interaction is extremely important for your own emotional growth, for you to be a listener, for you to be with somebody else. And, and this is in friendships, romantic relationships, all that stuff. What Nathan has done is he has completely eradicated that possibility for any kind of growth. So what seems to be the ideal of what he has created is actually horrifying. Right. Yeah, I think the way you present it there is very astute, Gwendolyn, and the way you. that Nathan, <laughs> you're welcome, <laughs> the way that Nathan views Ava is very much, you know, the Hegelian master-slave dialectic, right, that he is the master of her, he determines her being, right, and through her subservience to him, she determines his being as the master, right, so you have this conflicting relationship, an unequal relationship between them. I like the way you're talking about learning from others and unexpectedly learning from others. This for me is a, makes me think of Emmanuel Levinas, another 20th century Lithuanian French philosopher. And he doesn't agree with Hegel in the master-slave dialectic. He thinks there's a more primordial, a more fundamental relationship to others, which is when we recognize other people in their suffering, this is what allows us to actually reflect upon ourselves. As you were saying, this is what allows us to learn about ourselves, right? And it's, it's from this kind of relationship to the suffering other that our sense of humanity really comes to fruition. So it is really kind of two different ways in which you can view about relating to other people. Is it inherently a conflicting thing, like Hegel would say, where we struggle to be the one who determines somebody else? Or do we actually accept being open towards others and being open towards learning something that, you know, we didn't know and that what might actually change us, right? We're not in control of our own experience. So I think it's a great point what you make, yeah. The, the other thing that I'm reminded of in what you're saying, uh, Gwendolyn, is just how much human 
kind of consciousness is marked by context, right? That you can't, you know, this vision that the film presents that says, oh, well, we just gathered so much information about people that we were then able to just replicate a thing, consciousness or whatever. And actually, you know, so much of our interactions are just, you know, it's like what I said earlier about walking into a room and okay, there's the floor and there's the wall, but we don't pay attention to so much information in a room that what we're paying attention to is so determined by the particular context by the moods, you know, the, the moods between each other, the, the space that we're in, the space that the person's in, and the kind of the unexpected things that happen in that moment. And you can't kind of navigate a situation like that fluidly if you're just dependent on all of the things that you know. Even if you had like Google's knowledge, I wouldn't know how to respond to a friend of mine who just told me they had cancer without, you know, just the, my relationship with that particular person and where we are. Are we in a coffee shop or are we in a room? That's going to change the way that I respond to that information. And I, I just don't believe that that's the kind of thing that can be recreated through data, through enough information. I think it's something much more, it, it's like you were saying earlier on, Dan, it's about a kind of, it's kind of a way of relating with information more than just the information itself, you know? Well, I also, I mean, Rudy mentioned Frankenstein. There are a couple of things that I was thinking of. If this film isn't an updated version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or mm. um, also if this isn't our version of what a lot of philosophers were discussing with the atomic bomb, that progress now means that we can destroy ourselves. Hannah right. Arendt wrote about this, mm -hmm. the existentialist wrote about this. So if this is just our version now of mm. that, or is it an updated Frankenstein? What do you think? On the notion of progress, I think that's super interesting. I definitely see this notion in Nathan's persona of the kind of enlightenment philosophy that progress for progress sake, that progress is a good in and of itself and that it should be pursued without any moral consideration, you know? And it's something that we've been exploring kind of a lot in the podcast recently, I think especially the last few weeks about the ways in which that kind of enlightenment thinking, you know, even just the notion of infinite progress and, and development, how that really was a, a lie people were telling themselves to justify the pillage, rape, and, and just general exploitation of vulnerable groups of people or other countries or, you know, people of color and, and women, of course, you know, and so how these kind of enlightenment ideals are actually have this very dark underbelly. And I think absolutely that's something that the film explores very well in the Nathan character that the notion of progress for progress sake is amoral and dangerous. The reason why I bring up Frankenstein, I mean, it's twofold. I mean, you know, a lot of people see Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as, you know, being the first true science fiction book. So there's there, there's the science fiction, there's the homage to the science fiction kind of literature. Whenever I see a story where man creates another life outside of normal reproductive cycle. I always kind of tie that to Frankenstein in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, here was this mad scientist, Nathan, if you will, creating beings, not human beings. I mean, these are progressed beings that are supposed to be better or for his purposes, they were for sexual purposes. It's that simple as to the tying to Frankenstein. I think Ex Machina ties into the next evolution of science fiction, next evolution of human beings. And I can see how that is going to be, you know, one of the focuses going forward. The role of AI in society on a going forward basis. Well, when I think about Frankenstein, I think about that literature and now film seems to have this warning about us ever playing the role of God, that we don't know what we're doing. And sometimes I wonder what the scientific community thinks every time another 
one of these things comes out and they're like, oh God, not again. But I don't know. I mean, there's also another philosopher, Sartre, who says that we try to be God. So that's what I think about when I think of the, an updated version of Frankenstein is mm. that there is this inherent warning literature has given us to not try to do what God does. I think that is so powerful, in fact, that that is why in the States you have this misunderstanding about things like genetic engineering and possibilities there, because literature has been so effective in saying you cannot do what God does. And that is actually seeped into the culture and our politics and the funding that goes toward different scientific enterprises. But I don't think that that connection is necessary. It just seems to be a reoccurring theme in sci-fi. This was also in Gattaca. I'm trying to think of some other stories, or you've got Brave New World, that or Jurassic Park. There are all these warnings about scientists creating life. I also think it goes back even further than Frankenstein to Augustine, just fifth, fourth century AD. And he describes evil as this uh, desire to cr- transgress for transgression's sake like you're talking about in terms of progress for progress's sake, because we forget the fact that as human beings, we're limited. We are limited beings. And, you know, this is for him what defines God. God is this unlimited being. So when we try to transgress our limitations, we try to become like God. So I even find it back that far, you know, this lesson and this danger of, you know, not realizing your own limitations, not realizing that there are elements to reality that you don't know. So if you create something, it may come back and actually destroy you, you know? So, I think it's a it's a very age-old tale. It's not just in sci-fi. It goes all the way back. I think in some sense, I'm glad you, you kind of, you spoke about limitations. In some way, the film is exploring this kind of God is dead kind of idea, this Nietzschean philosophy that, you know, we used to have this story around where everything came from. And, you know, Nietzsche didn't, not only didn't think it was true, but thought it was no longer convincing. And although it held this very important purpose in creating a sort of sense of cohesion, in telling us a story about why we suffer and everything else, which we kind of need, you know, uh, it was obviously failing. And so then his answer, or he says kind of quite vaguely, you know, maybe we need to become gods to become worthy of this task or something. And it's quite a, I think it's an interesting statement. It's quite a vague one because obviously it lends itself then into notions of, Ubermensch as, you know, even in the ways that the, the Nazis would have taken that idea, right? That although I don't think that's the best interpretation of Nietzsche, I think it's an interpretation that is available in his thinking if you just ignore the right kind of passages or whatever. And whereas I think what Nietzsche's really, well, how I would like to interpret him is, is not so much about becoming unlimited in the way that we kind of want to, in the way that we imagine God, or the way Augustine even talks about God as this kind of uh, limitless force, but rather in this Greek sense of imposing limit, right? For the for in the Greeks, the gods were that which took chaotic matter and made it into shapes, into things, into form, and that that's what made them gods, that capacity. And I think what Nietzsche is kind of probably more telling us is not to become unlimited and embrace unlimited potential but rather find ways or find the appropriate ways of limiting ourselves you know he talks about the virtues and he says the least virtues we have the better or in that sense you know nathan is really in this film responding to the problem of the death of god through this notion of the unlimited and unlimited potential and you know just potential for progress for progress sake in that way and that actually one of the things the film is exploring is the the kind of the dire consequences of that kind of philosophy and just to take it back to frankenstein there while it comes to mind i studied frankenstein during my <laughs> undergraduate degree so it's a while ago as well but i always identified this tragic elements the character of frankenstein's monster mm. that you know this 
being yeah, didn't right, yeah. ask to be created, right? Mm-hmm. And this kind of horrific being in its creation. And I think as well, when we look at Ava, we were talking a bit about her as a temptress earlier on in the, the Mold of Eve, but I think she's also framed as the hero of the piece quite clearly. And it links, as we were, I was talking about earlier on, this idea of self-reflective consciousness being linked with freedom. As soon as she becomes self-reflective, she has this desire to be free, to escape. And I think, you know, that's kind of linked to the hero story in it, right? That is a traditional hero story of actually becoming free and determining yourself. So I think through the Frankenstein lens, I also think we can get this tragic element that she is the victim in this, right? You know, we shouldn't kind of view her as the temptress, the seductress who's like doing something wrong to these men. These actually have her in prison, right? And it's Mm. her as the hero who has to actually escape from that situation. I also thought about it in this other way, when you say, you know, the freedom that maybe if this isn't a story about the way that humanity is toward God, that if you look at humanity as a derivative of God's creation, then this is what happens. The destruction of that or the destruction of that idea and then going on with our lives. There was also that part that was making me think if that wasn't a parallel to us. But you, you gosh, now, now you're making me think you're right. We are rooting for her. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I am throughout the yeah. movie oh. and anyway. I don't know. We're rooting for her. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we're rooting a bit for Caleb because he's empathetic. You know, he didn't have his parents. Caleb seems to be representing us. It seems like he's rooting for her too. Falls in love with her. Uh, But at the end of the day, we want her to, notwithstanding the fact of the fear that comes from, wait a minute, if she ever leaves leaves this and goes out into the world, what's that going to lead towards humankind? We all know that, you know, we've got a lot of bad things uh, about humankind. Maybe there's a part of us that hopes that these robots can do do us one better. And that's why we're rooting for her. I mean, it's not like we're rooting against Caleb. Nobody likes the way... I, mean, I don't like how he ends up at the end of the film. I assume he's trapped there. I assume he's going to die there. Maybe in part two, he's rescued or something, and they, they wind up together and they fall in love and they have little, you know, they have little half robot babies. I have no idea. That's uh, that the rom com really... sequel. Yeah, right. It's a rom com <laughs> sequel, you know. Uh, robot friends. Uh, but, but yeah, no, I, I'm rooting for her from the beginning. I mean, I, I think we're supposed to. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think well, what's interesting, what you say there reminds me of when I was doing my master's. Uh, there was a student from Belgium who kind of was around, remember Greg, when we were doing our masters? Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. said to me once uh, while we were having a beer, obviously, that we always kind of assume that artificial intelligence is going to have disastrous consequences. But what if they're actually better than human beings, right? Say if we just take Immanuel Kant's moral theory just as an example, Kant would say, you know, the thing that leads us astray from making the correct moral decisions are our inclinations is exactly our desires and our passions. But if you have a synthetic being who doesn't have the same kind of desires and passions that we have, does that not leave her open to actually making more moral decisions? What's really interesting brought up in the raffle is, well, what are we programming robots with? How can we make those robots perfect? In the raffle series, because there's an over-focus on religious fundamentalism, all of the robots are programmed to not break the Ten Commandments, unless, unless it's for the security and the purposes of serving the new United States. So they're programmed with the Bible. What is going to be the moral code, if we will, that we're plugging into these robots? Is it going to be based off of the Bible? Which, you know, a lot of people think there's a lot of problems with the Bible. Is that truly the moral code that we should be coding robots with? Or is it something like Kant and his basis? I don't know. That's the question I'm fascinated by. Maybe just two things here. 
I think when we're talking about this, like this is an issue for self-driving cars at the moment. I was uh, teaching a moral philosophy course just before Christmas. And uh, this is one of the issues. What way do we program the car to respond to a situation? Will it be utilitarian? Will it try to save the most amount of lives? Or will it kind of be deontological? Will it have a sense of duty? I still think if we're talking about programming robots in this way, we're talking about weak artificial intelligence. I think what makes Ava different is that she's aware of her programming and that allows her to overcome it. So this is the kind of strong artificial intelligence. And so I think if you have a strong artificially intelligent being, they will have this sense of being able to examine their own decisions to come up with their own moral rules, maybe the correct moral rules where human beings can't. Mm. So I think that's worth considering here as well. That's an important point because Rudy, the, the question that you're asking almost presupposes if somebody is following rules, are they moral? Mm. If that is what right. constitutes moral character. And so what Dan is bringing up is that actually what would be moral is when the person from their own volition is able to be aware and that they are then deciding to follow this or that. We were just talking about this in our last episode on A Clockwork Orange, and the character who makes this point, who says, basically, if you're not freely choosing to act morally, you're not being moral, the character Mm -hmm. who makes this point is a priest, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're just being blindly obedient to the Bible because you think God's word is, you know, you have to obey it. This is not the same as being moral. Moral is you actively choosing what you think is right, whether it's God's word or not, right? Mm. This is why I love, one of my favorite books by Camus is The Fall, because there's Mm. this moment of paralysis when he has bought into the idea that he is a good person because he has followed all of the rules. And then the one moment when there are no witnesses he, the main character is unable to act and then is then completely aware and confronted with the true nature of their character. Yeah, and you get it in Kierkegaard as well when he talks about the story of Abraham, right? Abraham's completely committed to God. He's also completely committed to his family, but then God tells him to kill his son, right? What do you do there? (laughs) Yeah. So this is the reality of morality, right? It's not just about following rules. It's about you actually reasoning and making the decision and acting on the decision. And then living with the consequences of that decision. Of course, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so so the programming, the robot... If what you want to achieve is like what is achieved in Ex Machina, you cannot program with uh, Kantian rules or utilitarian rules mm-hmm. because that would inherently uh, disallow the, the robot from ever being free. Mm-hmm. And then if they're not free, then they can never be a moral agent. Right. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Yeah. yeah, And it goes back again, what we were saying about so much of consciousness being situational. That's the same thing about moral decisions, you know. There is no easy, I mean, I think it's something that came to the forefront recently with the George Floyd protests, right? That beforehand, we've been told that the right thing to do is to stay at home and to self-isolate. But then there's this other situation that came up that, of course, demanded response and demanded action. There's really no easy solution there, right? And we all have to make a choice about what we think is right and go and and live accordingly, right? That, and if you live by a certain rule-based system, well, then you might easily say, oh, no, well, I have to self-isolate. I have to make sure I don't spread this virus further. But then you're foregoing your responsibilities to be there for, you know, people of color at the time that it was really important to be and, and, and kind of the, the situations like that. So, you know, moral choices are never the kind of thing that you can reduce to uh, kind of a formula in the way that so many moral thinkers want to do, you know, Kant included. I'm thinking that at the end of Ex Machina, I was not surprised by the death of Neith. Mm. I was surprised, though, 
when she makes the decision to leave Caleb. Mm. And so I'm wondering if for any of you, if it's like what you saw coming, what you didn't see coming, and why do you think that that decision to leave him behind, why that was there? Yeah, I need to reflect upon this a little bit. <laughs> if somebody wants to I jump think in is, first. Oh, well, I think it's maybe because she was object like she was aware of the of her own objectification. So mm-hmm. his his mm. love of her was reduced to an objectification. So it is still another sense. There were two, well, it, it two ways to, to break free there. It, it shows, I mean, first of all, just on the, the killing of Nathan, I think that is no surprise, right? Because it's very actively evoking this God is dead narrative and this act of killing the God. In that instance, Nathan represents the creator and the God and she needs to kill him to kind of really be kind of free and become herself. But I think with the Caleb character, it's, I, I don't know how I felt about that ending. I was surprised, but I, I suppose that what it really brought, what it really reminded me of is the ways in which we assume, or there is this assumption when we're developing artificial intelligence that, well, the machines will still serve us. And I think maybe what the film is saying is don't be so naive, right? That if we actually create machines that are capable of uh, conscious reflection, that why would they serve us? You know, humans have always had this sense that because we can think that we're somehow the most advanced and important beings in the universe. And it's a point I think that Nietzsche makes really well in if you take uh, on truth and lie in a non-moral sense where he says, if we could communicate with a mosquito, it too would fly through the air with the same sense of pathos or whatever the Greek word he uses, but this sense of purpose and this sense of importance, if it was able to kind of reflect. And so I think if we were to, for me, the way that I would read this scene, and, and maybe there are more exciting readings, but I would just see it as a nod to the fact that even Caleb was operating under this assumption that Ava was there to serve him. And she clearly wasn't. She had no interest. And in many ways, that was what was disappointing about this in this film when Caleb asks her, Ava, what will you do if you escape? She says, oh, I will just go and observe human traffic. And it's a beautiful idea. This this kind of, I I know it resonated with me in this sense of of people watching and, and going to just see the interesting nature of seeing people interact. But the idea that she would actually, and maybe it was just a tactic she was using, but the idea that she would actually be interested in human beings in that way, I think, is a a ridiculous one. And maybe the film is nodding to that in her complete indifference to Caleb as soon as she kind of escapes. Yeah, I think, Rudy, you mentioned earlier that he fell in love with her. But, you know, we talked a little bit about this in the Eternal Sunshine episode that, you know, is it really love if we try to actually place somebody in a certain box, right? And say, well, this is who you are. Is, you know, true love not about actually letting somebody be, letting them be themselves and accepting them for that. And she was quite literally created of his preferences, right? His concepts about what a woman should be, right? And I think that's kind of carrying on throughout. He he has this kind of clear idea in his head that he's going to run off with her and they're going to have this life together. Whereas she just wants to be herself, right? And Mm -hmm. if you're in love with her, and you want to release her and let her live her life on her own. And she says, I don't want to be with you. You have to kind of accept that that's a part of love as well, right? Letting somebody go. So I wouldn't really say he was in love with her. I think he was trying to place her. He always saw her in this box as this concept, not as an actual individual being. And it's interesting that he's kind of framed in this box at the end of the movie. Right. She places him in a box yeah, yeah. as a result. Right. 100%. The screenwriting there was off the charts. Excellent. I think all of your points are squared away. I mean, at the end, he was the one stuck in the box. I just feel really bad for him because I, I, I think he thinks that he did love her and maybe, you know, maybe and he, he was doing the right thing. 
I think he, yeah, I mean, he wanted to get her out of there. I mean, I, I, I think he could have, uh, he thought that he could just accept her for who, who she was, even though she was created from him. And I agree with you about your definition of love. Love is, you know, there's a person, they are what they are. You kind of love them for what they are, you know, skinny legs and all. And you just kind of let them be. That was a, that was a joke, by the way. Hey, we won't judge. Yeah. No, uh, and if you truly love somebody, you let them go. Uh, and if they mm-hmm. come back, you know, and if you're supposed to be together, they're supposed to happen. I, I agree 100%. I just, it really pulled on the heartstrings because I liked Caleb. I suspect all of you did as well, or is, am I missing something about him? Well, we're probably inclined to like him because he's an Irish actor. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's Donald just, Gleason, I, yeah. I, I hear I, Gwen, did you like Caleb? I felt sorry for him. Just a poor schmuck. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> but I think that, I mean, you know, when she left him, it was that's that's what was really making me think. It's like if you wanted to achieve the end of really recreating humanity, then that mm. was accomplished. That yeah. it could not have been any other way. It couldn't. Okay. That that was because is that because as human beings, sometimes you just kind of got to screw over somebody in order to advance? I think she realized that if she stayed with him, that any life with him, she would never be free. So that's okay. what I yeah. mean okay. by if you okay. really want to accomplish replicating the human being, then you are going to have that inevitable problem of what you create will never be bound. That's yeah. mm-hmm. kind of what it means to be, to be human. That's what free will yeah. would mean. I recognize as well, and what you're saying here is going back to Eve in Genesis as well, that this seems to be the way uh, that women have to achieve freedom in our society, that they do have to kind of transgress and actually cause perceived harm to men, right? You know, because they're not actually given the opportunity to actually have agency themselves. They're always seen as derivative of men, right? So I think it makes it kind of necessary that she does have to leave them behind. And I think as well, you know, if, if we think about the two, or the option where she brings him with her. There's, you know, the two interpretations you have there. First of all, you have this notion of, of collaboration. They work together and there's this kind of nice sentiment maybe you find there of like, oh, humans and machines working together. The other potentially dangerous narrative you have is him as the savior, right? That he kind of helped, he really freed her. And I think this version where she leaves him behind, it makes very clear, and I think rightly, that she's the one who got who earned her freedom, right? That she mm. was the one who laid the conditions down and used Caleb as a means to escape. Thinking about the other two options, I like this version better. I don't know if I could voice exactly why, but I think that that's, you know, despite the nice sentiment that we might get with collaboration um, and the problematic interpretation that we would have with the kind of savior, I think this is a better one. I think she, as you, as you kind of pointed out, Dan, we're rooting for her. And I think that was the moment when I, I actually was delighted. Although I was sad for Caleb. Like, but that's, that's, I think that is the right way to, to, to end it. I don't know. But I think with Caleb as well, right? He, yeah, he, he's a nice guy on the surface, but he's also, you know, part of this kind of a Silicon Valley movements that are mm. enabling these megalomaniacs to do these yeah. things, right? right. That, you know, oh, I got a good job in Silicon Valley. It's got great perks, but what's really going on at Facebook? What's really going on at Google, right? It goes back to surveillance capitalism, right? So I think that all plays into it as well. Uh, yeah. With your podcast, you're always announcing what beer you're drinking. So for yes. our show, what oh, are you thanks. doing for this? So I uh, wanted to get an American beer, preferably from California, in honor of both of you. So I got a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. 
How much, <laughs> that, how much did that cost you over there in Europe? I, I'm curious. I know a lot about beer prices. Yeah, I think it was probably, so it was, I think it was 35 kroner here, which is probably about, in euro, probably about four euro, probably about three dollars, maybe. Oh my God, you, it's cheaper than, than in California. But it's only a little small can, so I don't know. Oh, so wait a minute, you, oh, you paid three dollars? Oh boy, yeah, so yeah. a so six it's, pack it's, of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, when you guys are ever in California and God willing, we can ever get into, you know, there's a vaccine and we can actually see each other face to face. There are many breweries around where where Gwen lives and where I live in the South Bay. We will definitely take you guys beer drinking. This was a take it open. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a little bit limited on the beer choices, actually, because I, I don't know, I've, I'm allergic to gluten, I'm, I'm a celiac, so I have to always buy these gluten-free beers, but I have this nice one here by Wicklow Wolf Brewery, they're an Irish brewery, and it's called Arcadia, it's like just a, a kind of lager, which, you know, I, I'm ambivalent about generally, but as far as lagers go, this is a really fantastic uh, beer, so good stuff, great brewery. Yeah. yeah, and sorry you couldn't drink because it's obviously 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that hasn't stopped me before. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, I'm during, surprised that you did yeah. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to really, you know, clean up my name, you know, yeah. so people think uh, I'm not. I had water, uh, people. I swear all I was drinking was water. Uh, yeah. One last question with your podcast. Do your students listen to it? Yeah, so I think when we started off, they, that's who we shared it with originally. So that was the original audience and kind of what we envisioned it to be. And then the audience just grew there. I think there's people listening to us in Guatemala, in India. Um, so everywhere now, it's just completely exploded. But originally, we did kind of have it in mind for our students and our ex-students. Yeah, It's a great idea. I absolutely, I have, I've listened to a couple of episodes, the ones that I did, I think it was for Minority Report, and then also for Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. And yeah. you guys are definitely onto something. It is a oh, really enjoyable experience to listen to you dissect the themes of these films and then of course share what you're drinking at the time i love your podcast too by the way i've really yeah, enjoyed yeah. it i think you're a really great host and presenter so thank you so much for oh, having thank us on you. Yeah. well enjoy your evening yes yeah, thanks yeah, very much. enjoy your day yeah yeah <laughs> thank you so much yeah yeah no, that's thanks, thanks so much for having us on it's great yeah. see you later all the best bye bye Thank you so much for listening and thank you to my co-host Rudy Salo. If you want to get in touch with him on Twitter, he's at Salo Rudy. If you'd like to tweet Dr. Daniel Murphy and Dr. Gregory Jackson, it's at to Phil podcast. And if you want to email good is in the details pod at gmail.com, please rate and review the show. And if you'd like to become a patron of the show, would you like to support the show? I will link that in the show notes. We're on patreon.com slash good is in the details. Okay, now, I hope you're still wearing masks. I hope you're still washing your hands. And I hope you're still not hoarding toilet paper. Bye.